You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, um, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. Otherwise, you can just follow along on the screen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sean. And good morning, everybody. If you haven't met me before, my name is Luke and I'm the pastor here at City on Hill, Melbourne West. And today I have brought my son's money safe. Interesting, isn't it? You suddenly just got excited, didn't you? Because you know that there's some money in here and you're thinking, how much money? And what could I do with this money? And then this thing is really quite exciting because it has a little uh, code. And then, how much is in here? What is this really, I think, is the sound, the sound of possibility. See, when we hear, think about money, there is so many possibilities in front of us. What can we do with this money? What can we get with it, achieve with it? Well, we're halfway through our series, The Sermon on the Mount, Uh, And really all along we've been saying that this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is uh, all about what it means to live in the kingdom of God under the rule of Christ. And today we get to what Jesus has to say about money. Now, money is a really big part of our lives. 
Uh, we spend so much of our time earning our money, making sure that we have it. We think a lot about it and it affects our emotions. Uh, our mood will rise and fall depending on how much money we have. And so because it's such a big part of our lives, it makes sense that it would also be a big part of life under the rule of Christ. Jesus wants us to understand the values, the ethics, the, the lifestyle when we live under his rule. And so he's going to talk about money. But in today's passage, I think we see two things that might limit the way that we think about money or might stop us from submitting to his rule. Two things, greed and anxiety. That's what I think Jesus wants to talk about today. First of all, he wants to help us to talk about and think about greed. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Uh, the word treasures here basically means anything that we value deeply, anything that we set our hearts on. Could be all kinds of things, but in particular today, I think he wants us to think about literal treasure, money, gold, jewels, whatever it is. These are things that we also might devote ourselves to getting, to having, because money offers us so much. It offers us pleasure and comfort, the thought of a new car, a big TV, a second house, a better house, whatever it is, pleasure. It offers us identity a sense of uh, fulfilment, a sense that uh, I've achieved something, I'm self-sufficient. Perhaps even uh, the sense that people envy me. We can be like feeling successful. It gives us the idea of freedom. We can be whoever we want to be and do whatever we want to do. And perhaps ultimately, though, it provides us with a sense of security, protection from the ups and downs of life and circumstance, a nest egg for the future, perhaps an inheritance to pass on to our children. But, Jesus says, Jesus warns us that these things that we imagine money will give will probably fall through. These things are unstable and unfulfilling. They're unreliable. Moth and rust can come in and destroy our clothes. Thieves can break in and steal our money. They pass away. They're temporary. They're transient. And so it is foolish for us to, to place so much uh, of our hearts in these things, to treasure them the way that we do. Now, is Jesus saying that money is wrong? No, I don't think so. In fact, in the Bible, there's a number of key figures who are very wealthy. Abraham, for instance, or Job. Uh, before his trials and suffering, he's very rich. And at the end of it, God actually doubles his wealth. So I don't think money is wrong if it's used in the right way. I also think that it doesn't, Jesus is not saying we can't ever use money on temporal things. Uh, throughout the Bible, it's clear that people should be able to provide for themselves and for those around them. That's part of God's expectations. And I don't also think that he's, he's saying that we can't think about the future with our money. So throughout Proverbs, we're regularly told to, to look at the ants because they think and they plan for the future. So it's wise for us to plan for the future with our money. So Jesus is not condemning money itself or the use of it. He is, however, warning us that we shouldn't invest so much of our hearts in money we shouldn't treasure it so much because money has this habit, this, this power over us. It can tie us to this life and this earth. Now, this is something that Jesus warned about with his parable of the sower. 
Uh, you might remember this parable. He imagines that uh, God is sending out the word. It's a little bit like a farmer throwing seeds out and it goes into different soil and different soil responds in different ways. He says in Mark 4 that some soil is falls among thorns. They are those who hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So there are things that can happen. We can be consumed by the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. And when I notice, when I read through that, I notice that basically all the things that we imagine money will give us are the things that it will fail to do. It will let us down. So we imagine that money will bring us pleasure, but we're deceived by that. Uh, John D. Rockefeller uh, founded the Standard Oil Company in America and became a billionaire. He said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Uh, John Jacob Astor was the first multimillionaire in America, and he described himself as the most miserable man on earth. We imagine that money will give us pleasure, but it fails us. And the problem is as well, we, we think, oh, okay, well, maybe I just need a little bit more, but we're never satisfied. As soon as we get one thing, we want the next thing. There's a great line in, in The Simpsons where Homer says to Mr Burns, oh, you are the richest man I know. And Mr Burns replies, yes, but I'd trade it all for more. Isn't that true? Like everything that we have, we're never satisfied. We always think a little bit more and then I'll be satisfied, but we're never going to reach that. Also, we think it will give us security, free us from anxiety, but instead it actually makes us more anxious. Uh, Henry, uh, William Henry Vanderbilt uh, inherited millions from his father and then uh, oversaw the, the making of a number of railways. He said, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Sinclair Ferguson writes, the more we gather possessions in order to feel secure, the more we feel we need them in order to be secure. And then the more we need to guard them to maintain our security. Therefore, the less secure we are. It's this horrible spiral. Whatever we, whenever we put so much into these things, we have to protect them more and more and they give us less of what they promised. And besides all of that, the pursuit of wealth, the treasuring of treasure, so to speak, can distort our thinking, our hearts, our morals. 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There's something ironic in here. We think that money will finally make us free to do whatever we want, to be whoever we want to be, but actually money masters us. We become its slave. We, we lose ourselves to it. And then ultimately, what do we get in return for it all? I mean, at the end of the day, what do we have to show for it? After Rockefeller died, someone asked, asked uh, how much money did he leave behind? The answer, all of it. Because that's the reality, isn't it? doesn't matter how much money you have. doesn't matter how many toys you have amassed. You have to leave it all behind. And so when we invest in the pleasures of now, 
we're investing in something that cannot last. As one writer puts it, we're like fools who would uh, be in a hotel room and we'd buy all of this furniture to fill the hotel room because we're going to have to leave. It doesn't make sense. That's folly, right? It doesn't work for us to give so much, to give ourselves to the pursuit of wealth. It doesn't make sense to lay up our treasures on earth. And the tragic thing is, we invest in all of this stuff that passes away when we could be investing in something that lasts, something that has an everlasting relevance. We could lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's what Jesus says. Now, of course, he's not talking about literal money, literal treasure. There's not some heavenly super, superannuation that you can kind of invest in. I don't think there'll be money in the new heavens and the new earth. But Jesus is saying instead that uh, instead of focusing on things that will pass away, the physical things, we can focus on spiritual things that will last. Uh, what are these treasures? Uh, I like John Stott's definition. Anything on earth whose effects last for eternity. Temporal activities with eternal consequences temporal activities with eternal consequences. And so we can invest, for instance, in our character because that was something that will last into heaven. Faith, hope and charity will continue on and so on. But in particular here, I think he's saying that we can spend our treasure, our physical money on things that will last, that things that will have a, a long-term impact, an impact that will echo into eternity. I think what he's saying here is invest in the kingdom. Remember, this sermon is all about life in the kingdom under his rule. And so we can spend our money for the kingdom, in the kingdom, with things that will endure. So, for instance, we can use our money to show the values of the kingdom. We can look after those who are in need because God loves for us to look after those who are poor, who are in difficult circumstances. That shows the values of our king. But in particular, I think we can invest in ministry. So when you give to this church or any other church, you are making it possible for people to be devoted to the ministry of uh, helping people, discipling people, helping them to grow in their understanding and love for God. You're, you're making it more possible for us to plant churches so that we can reach out into further places and expand the kingdom throughout the western suburbs. And when you invest in missionaries, you're making it possible for people to go to other countries and to devote their time, their life, to uh, telling the gospel, to often to people who have never heard of Jesus. This is remarkable. It's beautiful. As one writer says, because we give, eternity will be different for others and for us. Do you see, do you feel the possibility? You know, when I shake the, the money tin, do you feel the possibility that your money could change eternity? That there could be people who you meet in heaven who say, oh, because you gave that money, I got to hear the gospel. And that's why I'm here. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that worth it? You know, often, so often we buy things and we have buyer's regret. Whatever we bought just wasn't as good as we thought it, were, thought it was or it breaks. It's got that dreaded built-in obsolescence. But the kingdom never does. It's never obsolete. Whenever you invest in the kingdom, it lasts. It's enduring. It's beautiful. 
It's exciting, isn't it? Really, the way we view and use our money is, is a litmus test of where we're at. As Jesus says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever we spend our money on is really an indication of what our hearts are like. You know, so if you want to, if you want to trace it back to see where someone's heart is, just look at their bank accounts. You see the things that they value, whether it's fine food, fine dining, or if it's a new car, or it's sport, or comfort. All of those things that shows where our hearts are. And so if we're spending money on those things, but if we're also spending money on church or missionaries and so on, that will also reveal our heart. It's a real litmus test of what we're living for, of who we're living for. That's the point in verse 24, isn't it? No one can serve two masters. As Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. These are famous words. (laughs) We try to disprove them in every generation, don't we? We try to imagine that, yes, I can, I can live differently. I can have a bit of God and this other little God, money. But money has a way of wielding its power over us. It changes us. It deforms us. It just happens. It, it prompts people to lie and to cheat and to steal. It, it, it invites people to change their priorities so that they spend all of their time amassing wealth rather than looking and loving their family, spending time with their kids, whatever that is. It changes our values. It ties us to this earth. We just can't help it. We can try to resist it, but money often, just it just happens. We have to choose between God or money. Money promises us the world, but even if we gain it all, what will it profit us if we lose our own soul? It doesn't have to be like this. See, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's not just a revelation of where our heart is. It can also start to flip it back the other way. So perhaps your heart doesn't feel like investing in kingdom ministry, but you watch what happens. Once you start putting the money into it, your heart will follow. It's a little bit like when you, if you put money on a stock market. You know, you invested in BHP, you bought some stocks. You'll find your heart following BHP. So if you want to change your heart, ask God to do it, but then also step out, be generous, and discover how your heart changes. God is inviting us to invest in something that matters, that will last, that has enduring relevance, because this really are the values of the kingdom. You see, the king of the kingdom is a generous king. You think about Jesus. We're told in Isaiah that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's this great, mighty God who, when he came to this earth, could have come as a prince in fine dining and glamour, but he chose to come as a pauper. Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We're told that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He experienced poverty and difficulty. Why? Ultimately, because he wanted to give himself to Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by you, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Ultimately, we are spiritually poor. We are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer God 
That's why Jesus came. And out of the wealth of his, uh, uh, his glory and his righteousness, he gave from that. Those who are poor, he has made rich. And now we who are rich both spiritually and, and physically and with our treasure, we can make others rich with the riches of Christ by telling them, by making it possible for them to know about Jesus. This is the stuff that value that matters. This is the stuff of true value. God is inviting us to be generous. Now, I'm not going to give you a, a specific number or a figure or anything like that. In Corinthians, it says God loves a cheerful giver. What I want you to see are the possibilities, kingdom possibilities. When we invest in the kingdom, God can do amazing things. Our generosity can change eternity for us and for others. Well, having spoken about greed, Jesus then turns his attention to anxiety. And you can see why. You see, Jesus has been making some big calls here. Be generous. Get out there. Take a risk. For us, that means to live counterculturally, to forget about keeping up with the Joneses and sort of keep up with the Jesuses or something. But often for the people who are hearing this sermon, the people on the mountain, who sort of had a, an altogether more challenging feel. See, lots of the people listening were just kind of were living day to day. They'd work a day, they'd get some money, they'd get enough food for today, and then tomorrow they'd hope for something else and so on. And they were at the mercy of the, the elements, the weather, and, and then even if they did have money, it depended whether the Romans would try and take it off them. So what Jesus is saying here is very radical for them, and it, it would be easy for them to say, well, how can I do this? If I'm going to step out like this, I need to know that you will look after me. And so Jesus turns to anxiety. Verse 25, therefore... In light of everything I've just been saying, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's saying, don't worry. I'll look after you. If you trust me, if you step out, I'll look after you. If you invest in the future, God will look after the present. If you store up your treasure in heaven, <clears throat> God will, be, will provide enough for you here on earth. Now, first, that might sound a little bit simplistic, a bit glib. So perhaps we need a couple more quick disclaimers. I don't think Jesus is dismissing the reality of need or how hard it can be. As I said before, he experienced it. The Son of Man uh, has nowhere to lay his head. He's also not advocating just being reckless or lazy and just kind of waiting for God to give me all my money and not going out and working or uh, putting my family in danger. He's not saying that, 1 Timothy 5. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Like God expects us to look after the people we're responsible for. So we're right to have a kind of concern about these things if concern means that we're conscientious and we do what we can do and need to do. But he is saying that there can be a wrong kind of anxiety, a panicky, untrusting sense. As John Stott puts it, what Jesus forbids is neither thought nor forethought, but anxious thought. And in the following verses, I feel like he is unpacking what this looks like. He gives three big insights, I think, that are both help us see what is wrong with our kind of anxiety, but also offers us a way to change. 
I'm going to mix up the verses a little bit just to help with the flow. But the first thing I see is he wants us to learn that God is in control and so we need to learn humility. Verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, interestingly, in some translations it says, how can you add a cubit to your height? Because that word life can either be talking about your stature or your age. But either way, the point is the same. You can't get taller by wishing it or worrying about it. Um, I stopped worrying a long time ago. You can't extend your life just by being anxious about it. You can't control your circumstances by worrying. That's actually incredibly insightful because at its heart, anxiety is about control. It's about our desire to control things. This is something secular psychologists will say to you as well. I read this during the week uh, from a psychotherapist. Uh, Worrying stems from a desire to be in control. We often want to control our environment or we may want to want control over the outcome of every situation. But the more you try to control everything around you, the more anxious you feel. So it doesn't work and it makes us more anxious. It's not healthy for us. So what we have to do is to actually stop trying to control it. How do we do that? So this is the wonderful thing. God says, you need to understand that I'm in control. Replace the anxious thought with this new thought, with this recognition that God is in control because he's Yahweh, the one who is and was and is to come, the one who writes the story and knows how it ends. Isaiah 45, uh, 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And his purposes include us. My wife Ivana uh, often reminds me of a quote she heard uh, back in Bible school. We are immortal until God's plans for us are complete. Think about it. God has this plan for your life. And he will make sure it is completed. He will provide for you all the way up to that point. That's his plan. That's his will. He's just going to do it. He's in control. And so we need to learn the humility to accept that. I think that means that we can be bold, humble but also bold. So if you sense, for instance, that God is stirring within you, You sense that God wants you to step out, to invest in his ministry in some kind of way. There's every chance that that's actually God stirring and inviting you to take that step. And he's saying, look, trust me. If this is my will, I will look after you. I'll take you there. I'll provide for you the whole way through. God is in control. We need to learn humility. And secondly, God loves to provide, and so we need to embrace the joy of dependence. Verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, uh, secular psychologists will talk about how uh, when we're worried, when we have anxiety, we need to kind of um, confine that anxiety, kind of put it in a spot where I'm thinking about it now and, and not outside of that. Actually, Jesus is showing the same kind of wisdom here in a, in a deeper way. He's saying, don't, don't worry about everything beyond you. Just focus on what's happening here. 
uh, John Stott has some great insights on this. See, he points out that we're constantly worrying about the future, about things that haven't yet happened. And how is that actually helping us? So we worry that we won't pass an exam, but we don't know that yet. Uh, We worry that we'll uh, perhaps never get married, but we don't know that yet. We worry that we won't be able to find that perfect house or our kids won't grow up to know Jesus or whatever it is, but we don't know any of that. And so our worrying today about tomorrow is not healthy. It just destroys us, as Stop puts it. Each day has troubles enough of its own, so why anticipate them? If we do, we double them. For if our fear does not materialise, we've worried once for nothing. If it does materialise, we've worried twice instead of once. In both cases, it's foolish. Worry doubles trouble. Homespun, but it's wise, surely. What God invites us instead is to depend on him and to actually discover the joy of that. And there's something that I've been thinking through, that what God wants to do, he loves to give to us piece by piece, bit by bit, You see, God loves to provide for us, and often it's all kinds of stuff. But also he loves to do it just little bit by bit. You see this in the Bible. Uh, As he brings his people up out of Egypt, uh, he provides for them manna from heaven. Now, he doesn't just give them one big Costco-sized portion of manna from heaven. Here's enough for the week. No, he gives them enough for every day. Not not, Not more than that, but never less than that. Why? Because he wants them to experience the joy of dependence. He wants them to know his provision every day. You think about those moments in your life where you really were were down to nothing. Your bank account was on zero or whatever it was, and then you were praying and desperately asking God to provide, and he did. It was an exciting feeling, right? God wants you to have that feeling more and more. He wants you to know his provision in extraordinary and beautiful ways. This is the God who invites us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, because he wants us to know his provision day by day. There's so many wonderful stories about this kind of thing. Uh, Ms. McConnell leads churches in uh, low-income housing estates in Scotland. Money's always difficult, and recently they've found themselves uh, 12,000 pounds behind budgets, a lot of money. He says, the next day, a pastor of another church rang and said, oh, by the way, our church has made an offering to you of 12,000 pounds. He didn't know anything about the deficit. I told them that's exactly the amount of our shortfall. And we both laughed and praised the Lord. But then things like this happen all the time because he's constantly stepping out in faith. He says, my church gets sick of me because in my experience of 20 years of ministry, the one thing I don't worry about is money. We don't necessarily wait until we have the money to give. We give and expect the money to come. And every time the Lord comes through, he's stepping out in faith. And so he experiences God's provision day by day. So thirdly, I think God, we need to learn that God values us so we can rest in his care. This is a point Jesus makes by pointing to the birds and to the flowers. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. And neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies, the, the wildflowers of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. I mean, we look at these little things, these useless little tiny birds, we think, or this wildflower that no one even notices. God cares about them. They're valuable to, the, to him, even if it's these tiny little things. And so how much more valuable would we be to him? We are his children. He's created us. More than that, he's died for us, adopted us as his children. So we can be confident that we have value. So we can rest in his care. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave everything to make us his children. The father gave his son. The son gave everything. The spirit gave himself to be us, to be within us, to make us come to him. That's how valuable we are. And so that also, uh, there's comfort here, but there's also rebuke. You see, it must be offensive to God when we fail to trust him. That's what he says in verse 30, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt my provision for you? This is the point that Jesus makes elsewhere in Matthew 7. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, you're inconsistent, you're selfish, you're, you're driven by your own comfort, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven good, give good things to those who ask him? Do you see the point? Do you see how it can be offensive to God if we, if we don't trust him like this. He wants to provide for us. I read this crazy story about a, a woman named Kate who was about to work uh, in the Czech Republic as a missionary. Uh, it was going to be a financial risk and so she was very anxious about this and her family was particularly anxious about it as well. And so before she left, she, she just prayed that God would provide her a significant encouragement, like a, a big donation to kind of reassure her and her family that he was in this, that he was leading her to this. And then just a couple of days later, the sister of a friend, someone she'd never met before, deposited £4,000 in her bank account. And that week, uh, someone in the church went up to her parents, however much you, and said this, however much you love Kate and want her to be looked after, don't you think God wants it so much more? Like we would look after our children so does God. God loves to be our father. He loves to provide for us. And so when we fail to trust this, we, we just look like everyone else. It's like we don't have a father. Verse 31, that's Jesus' point. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. To the Gentiles, they're, they're unreligious people who, who don't have any sense that God is present or he's real or caring or good or anything like that. They worry about all of these things because they don't know God as their father. And so if we're worrying like that, then we just look like them. It shows that we don't really know our God and his care for us. And yet by the same token, when we do trust in him, in those difficult moments, then we show the world how good God is. Do you know, more and more, as I think about evangelism, I think it's about pointing to God in the difficult moments. So, so we might want to 
tell the gospel. We might have a nice gospel presentation all laid out. And we're all ready to go for an apologetics debate or something like that. We rarely get those opportunities. And if we do, it just sort of feels like it just it, it's water off a duck's back. They don't notice it. Oh, that's, that's really nice. You've got that religion. That's great. Yeah, that's good for you. But when someone's in need or they see us in need, that's when they notice. That's when you can evangelise. When someone is in need and, and they're worried and they're anxious, they are looking for a father to look after them and you can point them to it. And the best way you can point them to it is by showing your own experience of when you were in need and God provided for you. I had a friend who had this experience. Uh, when he was a teenager, uh, his father left his wife, uh, his mum, and uh, there were four kids. They had very little, very, very little. There were times where they basically ran out of anything and repeatedly God would just miraculously provide for them. There'd be a knock on the door and there was a plate of food at the front door or there was a, an envelope with money. And this was so profound for him. It really made God real for him. And it was pivotal in him uh, becoming a believer and living out his faith that these stories became part of his story, his testimony, his witness to who God is. We get to do that. We get to provide for that. Perhaps you have a story like this. Or perhaps you don't. And as we come to a close, that's what I want to kind of explore with us, with you. I mean, we may never get to this point of needing God like this. We have everything we need. We have food, we have clothing, we have a roof over our heads. I mean, if you don't have any of those things, please come and see us. We can help. That's what we need to do. But I suspect that our problem is not that. Our problem is not that we have too little. Our danger is that we have too much. See, perhaps we don't have these stories of God's extraordinary provision because we've never needed them and because we've never been daring enough. God is capable of providing, but perhaps we've never given him the chance to provide for us in a miraculous way. See, most of my life I live in my wants rather than my needs. My uh, greatest temptation is greed shouldn't be anxiety. I still find ways to be plenty anxious about money, but there's no excuse for that. I've got everything that I need. My great danger is that I'll just continue to want more. I'll continue to be greedy. Perhaps we're just playing it too safe. I think God is inviting us to step out in faith, to let him show us his care, to open ourselves to the joy of his provision. And I feel like there's almost like a blessed spiral here. You know, if, if we step out in faith, then we see God's provision and then we experience more and more of it. I was reading a story about a bloke who was in Romania, a missionary in Romania, uh, constantly just waiting for the next thing. He just had no money basically uh, and he was heading to a hotel and uh, he, he ran into an American guy who had to leave the country and said, look, here's a bunch of Romanian money that I, uh, I don't need it anymore. I'm heading back home. And then he heads to the hotel. He's got no other money except for this money. And it turns out it's the exact amount that he needs. It's extraordinary. Just God continually provides. He says, if these sorts of things happen once or twice, you can explain them away. But when it happens so often, you get the feeling that God is the God of finance. He says, I never really considered myself a man of great faith. 
There's always a side of me that's doubting, but I choose to go with the faith side. I ask what happens if God doesn't provide, but my testimony is that God has provided. Again and again, God provides. So are we willing to try it? Are we willing to let him provide? I feel like that might explain verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Uh, I've always kind of thought that that second part, all these things will be added to you, is, is basically saying, look, if you, if you invest in the kingdom, then you'll get enough other stuff around you. And that's kind of true. Right? You know, there's a bunch of commentators who kind of make that point as well. But I wonder if it's less about physical provision as spiritual provision. What I'm saying is if we seek first the kingdom of God in every part of our lives, even with our money, then God will provide all these other things. What are those other things? He'll provide us with humility because we'll see that he is in control. He'll provide us uh, with, uh, we'll be able to embrace the wonder, the joy of dependence because we'll see that God loves to provide and we'll have a deep sense of his care for us because we'll know, we'll understand our value. In his eyes. These are the things that God wants to provide us with. If we seek his kingdom, the king promises that he'll be with us. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this passage, for this sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount that is just uh, so compelling, so encouraging and inspiring, confronting every week. Uh, but so beautiful too. Lord, we thank you that you do provide for us. We acknowledge the wealth that we have, each one of us, and we thank you for your provision, for giving this to us. Lord, we acknowledge as well that we are greedy and anxious, that we want more, even though you've given us so much. We're anxious. Uh, we're afraid to give more to you, to, to step out in faith, because we, we just want to hold on to it for ourselves. We're not sure that you'll provide Lord, forgive us and convince us. Show us your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, that ultimately you who were rich made yourself poor so that we could know you, so that we could become rich. And with our spiritual riches, we acknowledge our physical riches and we ask that we might use these so that others can come to know you. Help us to seek first your kingdom. And thank you for the things that you will provide as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.